Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. There are nearly 20 million military vets in the U.S., and each week we focus on their stories. This is CBS Ion Veterans. Welcome back to CBS Ion Veterans, reporting for ConnectingVets.com. I'm Navy vet Phil Briggs, and I want to lead off the show this week and talk about the spy balloon. Now, it almost seems like old news at this point, but I heard a perspective in the last few days that was completely different from everything I'd heard on the Alphabet News Networks, down to the blogs, down to Facebook and social media. This perspective on the importance and significance of this Chinese spy balloon is worthy to hear, and I think you're going to be surprised when you hear it. And uh, we're going to talk with my colleague at ConnectingVets.com and also the host of the Military Matters podcast for Stars and Stripes down there in Tampa, Florida, U.S. Army Reserve Warrant Officer with 20 plus years experience in the intelligence community. And I just know him as my good buddy, Rod Rodriguez. Chief, how are you? I'm doing amazing. Phil, thanks for having me on again, bud. It's always great to talk with you. Yeah. And as we were trading things on Twitter, I couldn't help but notice the Back Brief podcast uh, this week features your take you know, at first I thought you were going to rant and rave like we heard. You know, one side says, well, we had to shoot it over the ocean, so it was safe. And the other side says, oh, you should have shot it down right away. Don't you care about Americans? We we look weak on the global stage. And I thought those were the two extremities of this argument. Tease me a little bit about what this episode of the podcast, The Back Brief, says about the spy balloon. So, uh, Phil, I, I just want to preface this whole discussion with saying that uh, I'm not representing the Army, Army Reserve or the intelligence community when, when we're in this discussion that just want to get that right off the bat here. And yeah. this is just Rod uh, floating his ideas here, but here's the thing the the major perspective here and the, the, the big argument that I've heard is a criticism of the administration, the criticism of the intelligence community, as if this balloon wandered in to our airspace. And we had no clue. We got caught with our pants down and the Chinese were laughing the big thing about U.S. intelligence is not what 
happens that we're able to expose. That's, that's not how this works. Our best kept secrets are our capabilities. So when I see this, this spy balloon come flying in the United States and some guy points at it and goes, what the hell is that? What, what do you expect the government to do? Are, are, do you expect for them to like release their program on, you know, a turns out we knew these spy balloons have been coming into the U.S. and we've been feeding these intel, these ba- these balloons bad intel, or we know exactly what these balloons are collecting and it doesn't bother us in the slightest bit. Like, there's a thousand different reasons that balloon could have been flying over the U.S. and we didn't do anything about it. it it's very possible that some. Chinese intelligence balloon operator was sitting there behind his computer when the when one of our boys popped up in a little pop up window like, "Hey, buddy, cute balloon, mm, it, you know it's in the news now, so we got to shut you down." Loves and kisses, you know, Airman Snuffy, and that was it. <laughs> I I I don't believe for a minute that this was ineptitude by our government or by the men and women who have been tasked with defending our airspace. We are very, very good at what we do. Those, those, those Air Force or Space Force people, they're very good at what they do in defending our homeland security. So now lawmakers, on the other hand, policymakers, they get no benefit of a doubt. For those service members that are tasked with, with protecting this country, nah, dude, I don't believe for a second that we got caught with our pants down or we didn't know what's going on. If anything, I think this is a subtle uh, like nod to the Chinese. Like, yeah, we get it. Spy balloons, dude. Also, you know, 1945 called. They want their balloon technology back. <laughs> it's 2020. Look, man, we got U2s. We got spy planes. And guys, this is not classified. Go look it up on Google. We have a space plane unmanned that flies around earth in like the stratospheres it comes down lands on its own and it is so far in space and it is in space for so long that when you watch these uh there's pictures of it like landing right and these dudes have to go out there in radiation outfits because it's been exposed to solar like space radiation for so long this thing's radioactive right that is what we bring to the fight we will eat your lunch in your own backyard, and you'll never know we were there. And we're worried about a balloon, bro. And now, mind you, China is our near-peer competitor. China is that country that we're, we were all like, oh, my God, it's 1,000 Chinese soldiers to one American or 10,000 to one American. And then the Russians, with a little help from a friend, Ukraine has been able to hold back Russia. Now. Terrible, terrible war. Real shame if if they got, you know, stingers. Be a real shame if they could, you know, got a little assistance from special uh, activities and all this other stuff. So Russia is getting stopped and China, a, a balloon like this is our near peer. We are so far ahead of our competition that this Chinese balloon thing should have been an indicator for America to go. We're doing all right, folks. We're doing all right. And the fact that it's not a new thing 
that Russia, China, and the U.S. are all spying on each other all the time. That's constantly ongoing, and I think we forget that. And just real quick, give me a little bit of your intel background, because this isn't coming from just some spirited fan in the cheap seats. You actually worked military intelligence in a variety of ways. Share with me just some of the things that you've done and how you might know about how uh, surveillance and reconnaissance works in the military. Well, Phil, mostly I've worked in the food service industry. I was just, uh, I worked in the chow hall. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, I, you know, 20 years of working in the intelligence field, uh, both as a, as a uniformed service member and as a contractor. Uh, I'm not saying anything that that's classified. Everybody should know that your country is a, the most powerful country in, in, in the world. Every American citizen should wake up after this balloon thing going, God, it feels good to be an American. Put on a little Toby Keith. Put on a little uh, uh, Ray Charles. America. It should fill you with pride that our closest competitor is tossing a balloon in the sky. While we have space planes, U-2s. We killed Osama bin Laden using a stealth helicopter. Now it, it crashed. I get it. But hey. We have a stealth helicopter <laughs> for crying out loud. <laughs> um, let's end here. I hear a lot of a lot of the talking heads um, saying that our lack of swift action makes us look weak on the world stage. Look, there is no country on this planet. There is no enemy on this planet that thinks America is weak. If they did, believe me. We have plenty of places for them to come test their resolve. Even our, wor- our most hated enemies, our terrorist enemies, have chosen to attack us through subversion, through uh, backdoor channels, through surprise this, surprise that. They, they don't want a full comfort. They don't want to step up. Nobody wants that. What's our track record when it comes to force on force? We're the guys that jump into world wars to end them. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's our track record, people. Nobody, nobody thinks this country's weak. You know what I hear from is more. I, I'll tell you where I hear America's weak. I hear it from Americans. That's who I hear it the most from. I hear that America's a great Satan. Okay. Okay. I'll take great Satan. All right. And, you know, that's kind of metal. I'm down. But I don't hear our adversaries calling us weak most of the time. And if they are, come on, that's just them talking crap. It's that territorialism, right? It's that tribalism. But no, 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 no. I hear America's weak from American talking heads. That's where I hear it the most, man. And that's why I don't believe believe a word of those dudes. Next birthday party for your kids, call the Chinese embassy. Ask them if they send clowns with their balloons. Just relax, folks. It's going to be okay. Got it, man. You want more of this? Check out Rod Rodriguez every week on the Back Brief Podcast. Get it everywhere you get podcasts. And, of course, as always, at ConnectingVets.com. Rod, appreciate you, brother. We'll talk soon. Yeah, buddy. Welcome back to CBS Eye on Veterans. I'm Navy vet Phil Briggs reporting for ConnectingVets.com. And uh, again, we're doing a book report today and going to talk with another inspiring veteran who's also an author and has so much to share with us. We're talking about the book From Lawyer to Warrior, Failing the Bar, Becoming a Marine 
and finding meaning. Marine veteran Chris Pavlak. Chris, how are you? Hey, great to be here, Bill. Thank you so much for having me. This is fantastic. Yeah, man. You know I love a good book. You know I love veteran authors. And this one surprised me. It was recommended by a mutual friend of ours. Give me the cliff note version. Yeah, yeah. I was in law school um, in 2000, between 2003 and 2006, three-year program in Minnesota. And I had these aspirations of being a, a federal prosecutor, a U.S. attorney, as a stepping stone to a uh, a big-time law firm job somewhere either in Washington, D.C., New York, or San Francisco, right? And I was just fixated on making money. Uh, but I knew that those big law firms needed to have some kind of bona fides with the individual attorney and courtroom experience was that bona fides. And so I said, okay, well, I want to be a federal prosecutor and then, you know, continue on. Well, my grades were not that great to get into, to be competitive for a uh, uh, U.S. attorney's office, even right out of law school, right? And so I, I found a kind of a back door, so to speak. And I think other, other staff judge advocates would tell you this, that the JAG Corps is a great place to get like baptism by fire of courtroom experience, right? Well, so I started exploring the Marine Corps as an option because as, as far as I was concerned, if I was ever going to join the Marine Corps or going to join the military, it was going to be the Marine Corps. Um, no, not to disparage any other branch, you know, go Navy, beat Army, but like I was only going to be a Marine if I was ever going to do this. And as I approached the Marine Corps and I visited my officer selection officer, he said, hey, love your motivation, but um, we have all of our slots are filled. Our quota is filled. We don't need any more lawyers. And I was like, okay, well, that can't be the final word. I'm going to keep exploring this. And so for the next probably, I did this in my second year, my 2L year of school. Uh, I kept exploring and uh, I'm like, okay, we're going to, I'm going to find a back door into this thing. Well, sure enough, there were just no open slots. And uh, I'm like, damn, you know, what am I going to do now? Because I really want to do this. And I met some Marines along the way, uh, very helpful and just very uh, generous with their time and with their, with their energy. And so, yeah, that was, that's kind of sets up the story. That was like initially what I wanted to do with a legal career and how the Marine Corps kind of came into that orbit uh, initially. Yeah, man. You mm-hmm. failed the bar. How many times? Well, all told, I failed it four times. Uh, I never, I've never passed it. I've tried it four times, never passed it. I tried it three times in Minnesota, once in California. I took it back to back, two thousand six and seven, uh, and that was basically the nail in the coffin for being unable to become a staff judge advocate. I, I just couldn't pass this damn test, and I was just kind of so exasperated and really full of humiliation and really kind of not knowing what I was going to do when you, and this is what my first, first chapter is about. My first couple of chapters are about this. Like when you're, when you're met with such, you know, catastrophic failure, so to speak, after putting in all that time and effort, not just the three years of law school, obviously, but then it was two and a half months straight of studying for the bar exam that summer of 2006. And then I did it again, 2007, when you do all that work and you still come up empty handed, you kind of look at the world like, can I do anything right? Is this, can I, can I achieve anything I want to achieve? And, and these are some real hard questions to ask yourself because you think that universe is going to kind of respond in kind with the kind of work you're doing. And I would argue that, you know, an ethic emerges and that ethic is I'm going to sacrifice something time now for a payoff in the future. I'm going to work hard and I'm going to get what I want. And for most of the time that works. You know, if you want to go lose weight, you're going to start a nutrition plan. You're going to go run. You're going to go lift all these things. And in six months, you're going to come back to me and say, hey, Chris, I lost 30 pounds. Like, great. But if 
after those six months, you said, Chris, I gained 30 pounds. It doesn't really compute, right? And so I was trying to make sense of this. I could not make sense of this whole this whole thing. And so when I say back up against the wall, I really had no idea what I was going to do, except I knew I had to do something. And I said, you know what? I want to be a Marine. Maybe I need to be a Marine more as a man than I ever needed to be as an attorney. And so I, I'm like, here I go, because I really am like at wit's end with trying to figure this whole thing out right now. I want to touch on one other thing before the military. And that was, you talk about the mindset of the people in law school, the yeah. type of student it attracts, they're hyper-driven, you know, super competitive when it comes to grades, but they might also be falling into kind of a dangerous trap or a, right. or a psychological ethos that is not healthy. Share with me a little bit about that. Yeah. So the way I coined it, the, the title of my second chapter, I've coined it schadenfreude. It's a German word, which means harm joy. And we've probably seen it, you know, in, in other kind of contexts called negative competition, right? And in the microcosm of law school, what that means is, you know, we all can't get A's in, in the class, right? The grade distribution is such where someone's going to get an A and someone's going to get a D and that's, that's by design. And so what happens is if, if, if Phil, if I find out Phil made a mistake or Phil screwed up or did something that is a setback for him, that's a benefit to me. And so what does that do when it comes to my outlook on the rest of my colleagues and my, my other students, right? My other classmates. I want them to slip up or make a mistake or get something wrong on an exam because that means it's going to be to my benefit and I can then be in a higher class rank. And why does that class rank matter? Because that's how law firms will grade you and judge you as whether you're an applicant for their law firm or not. My point with this is it's a lot of external validation is what's driving a lot of behavior in law school. And this is not an indictment on law. It's not an indictment on the practice of law. I just kind of give an unvarnished look at this is the environment of a, I'd say, garden variety law school across America, where you're going to have hyperly, hyper competitive students jockeying for a very small amount of good grades and who need to get a certain GPA to secure the job that they think you're going to get after spending $150,000 in, in law school loans. And I think I wanted to bring it up because it highlights something that I think is really ever present, not just in law school, but in colleges, in high schools, in youth sports, mm -hmm. um, the team aspect, the wanting to do something for something bigger than yourself is being lost. And we're really, I think, becoming kind of narcissistic. That is the exact opposite of the ethos in the exactly. military. And it's yeah, a, yeah. it's an ugly reality that so many people are struggling with. And you'd also said something about how failure you know, that we yeah. see people out there taking their lives, not yeah. just in the veteran community, but we see people no. who have gone through trauma and gone through struggle, mm -hmm. hit the wall here and there, had a failure here and there, and they're making the ultimate worst decision. And yeah. that's why yeah. I want to highlight what you have to say in this book, because it comes from a place of failure. What was the next step? Talk to me about getting to the core. Uh, so you know, because I had been talking to this officer selection officer for 18 months or 15 months before this, okay, I already had those relationships established, but it was on, it was up to me. Do I want to join the Marine Corps or not? Do I want to basically walk away from the practice of law? Because I could study for the bar exam a third time, you know, in a row if I wanted to, but I was just, I had been so profligate with all my energy. I had just like, just expelled all the energy on studying twice in a row. I just had no more energy to sit down and buckle up yet again for a third time. And so I said, I said, screw it. I'm 
this is the best thing I have going for myself right now. And other Marines I spoke to, they they said, you know, and some of my mentors, they said, it's never a bad decision to become a Marine officer. And I really had to think about that and it crystallized. And I said, yeah, this might be, you know, one shot where maybe in the future I could become an attorney. But as I immersed myself in the Marine Corps ethos and I really wanted to do this, I realized this is my only shot to be a Marine because I was already 28 at the time. And now it wasn't too old, but it was getting to be too old. After age 32, it's no go. So yeah, I, I'm like, okay, I'm joining the Marine Corps. I sound, I sound as a ground contract. And I said, okay, well, whatever comes my way is going to come my way. And, and that uh, really did ch- change my life forever. The privilege of commanding a rifle platoon. First off, officer candidate school and the basic school, I mean, they're the same for all the Marine officers. And those were challenging times and those weren't easy. But I tell you, that was the most challenging thing I've ever done. But it was the most worthwhile and meaningful thing I've ever done. Following the 2007 failing the bar exam, 18 months later, I'm at the pinnacle graduating from infantry officer course with some of the best men I've ever met in my life and having some amazing experiences. And it was finally that really began to help me shift that that thinking from from schadenfreude to esprit de corps, right? Like we work as a team, we have to work as a team. That's some, those were some negative feelings I was harboring that I had to really shed if I was going to do well as a Marine officer. I had to just get rid of those old feelings of, of selfishness. Now, today we're talking about an inspiring new book from Marine Corps veteran and former ground intelligence officer, Chris Pavlak. The book is From Lawyer to Warrior, Failing the Bar Exam, Becoming a Marine, and Finding Meaning. We jump back into the interview where Chris shares what it was like taking command of a combat-tested rifle platoon as a brand new green officer. So you're standing there in front of some salty enlisted. I mean, you got E4s <laughs> through E6s there that have seen more war than you've read about in books. And yeah, yeah, yeah. here you are, their green new officer. Hey, guys, um, <laughs> tell yeah. me what that was like. Well, I checked in like every, you know, every officer has to check into their battalion commander. And um, I checked into a gentleman who had actually been a former executive officer of, of a reconnaissance uh, battalion. And I met my staff sergeant, the platoon sergeant. And I said, I said, listen, staff sergeant, like, look, you and these Marines and these squad leaders have been doing this for years now. A, a platoon sergeant usually has about 12 years in the Marine Corps, right? Squad leaders have about nine, maybe 10. And um, I'm like, far be it for me to assume how I know how this works. Yes, I was trained in the last 18 months of school in the Marine Corps officer training. I know how these things work on paper. And I know how they're supposed to work, but this is the real world. Now there are guys who have come from combat. You're coming from combat. It's I'm not going to presume. I know all these things. So I I said, I'm going to defer to you and the squad leaders for many of these, these decisions. Bottom line, I make the final decision because I'm the officer, but you are going to inform those decisions. I'm going to rest on your experience because I think I'd be stupid not to, right. I'd be kind of, I'd be idiotic not to do that. And, that comes from, I think, again, I was a bit more mature than other officers because I was, you know, 28. I'd gone through different experiences. I'd been to law school. So I had at least that I, I hope was enough prudence to see, okay, leverage your experience in these Marines, right? Because, and, and as it came true, they will never lead you astray. They will never lead you the wrong way. They're always going to help you and they're going to support you. And they're going to perform in ways you never even dreamed. 
And so it was, that was what was so gratifying about it. Like drop your ego. There is no place for ego at, in a rifle platoon. There is none because it's going to get Marines killed. Right. You know, it's, it's understanding those things that the battalion commander needs to, to do when it comes to infantry. Uh, at, you know, for the ground intel guys, you have to speak infantry language and then be able to speak to enemy threat language. Right. So when we say human intelligence, that can be interrogation. When we say signals intelligence, that can be like listening to communications and chatter on radios and cell phones. Ground intel could be looking from aerial positions at, at what's going on on the ground and reconnaissance and, assets. Yeah. And ground reconnaissance food. assets that are yep. sneaking around a ridge and looking down on the bad guys trying to figure out what they're doing down there. Yeah, The intel officer coordinates, takes all these data points, takes all this information and tries to weave the story for the captain so that we can see what to do with our troops on the ground. Now, what is it a rifle platoon officer does and how radically different was that? Well, you know, it was so rifle platoon commander is in charge of about 40 Marines, fire breathing Marines. And they're the ones who are at the literal tip of the tip of the spear. Like they're the ones kicking in doors in an urban fight. They're the ones slinging rounds, rounds down range. Right. And so, and now all my training up to this point had prepared me for this because of infantry officer course, that is the school for infantry officers and, and the ground Intel pipeline. Right. So I, again, I knew what right looked like and I knew what I, I guess you could say, I knew what I had learned, but uh, it was one of those things like, oh, my God, now I'm actually going to be in charge of these guys. Like, this is now an extremely humbling moment because, like, now, did I learn how to call for fire properly? Did I learn how to employ three squads simultaneously to focus on, you know, the task that the, the company commander gave us? Do I know how to call for a medevac? Do I know how to call for a nine line? Because these guys' lives might depend on it. And I need to know how to do these things. The more immature person might walk in. As on their first day, like like Patton, and think that they're just going to conquer the world with this rifle platoon, and they're going to do all these great things. Where it's like, I think if you're truly humble about it, like I have immense responsibility now. I got to make sure I keep these guys safe in every training environment, and if we deploy to combat, they got to come home safely. But again, they're quietly appraising you, and this is one thing that I learned, and we always learned it through through officer candidate school. Your Marines will always always be watching you. Uh, when you're on a hike, do you, when, when they call, they usually call a, like a five or 10 minute break after every three miles, right? But you're carrying a lot of weight. You're going up the nasty hills of Camp Pendleton, right? Up and down, up and down. It's hot. Well, during that break, the officer doesn't take his pack off. The officer doesn't like sit down and rest. The platoon commander, you walk up and down your, 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 your squads and check with your Marines. Are you okay? How are your feet? You know, you, you're hydrating. Like that's what you do. It's all you got to think about the external components here about leading your men and and again your marines will see what you do and what you don't do uh and they'll see if this officer is actually towing the line right on yeah yeah i've compared it to my friends as far as being in a division in the military you know it's like having a bunch of little brothers or older brothers and you know uh when the officer walks in and he's your division officer or he's in charge of your unit um a good one will inspire the heck out of those guys and you'll get the most out of your brothers and sisters on your team. A bad one, a bad right. one might, uh, you know, result in some brawls. All right. Um, I, I think one of the things we'll glean from this whole story is a failure, regardless of type can have a significant impact on our soul. Share with me your thoughts yeah. on that. Well, this goes back to something we talked about a little bit ago about, you know, um, in some of my research, 
I found out there were people who did kill themselves after failing the bar exam. These are real things. And so if you, and I went to law school for all the wrong reasons, as I mentioned. And so if you go to law school for those, you know, financial incentives, et cetera, and that hyper-competitive environment kind of has its way with you. And at the end of all that, you don't pass the bar exam. You need to be real careful because it could come real dark real fast. It's such a a, a high amount of work and and just dedication for something like this to to pass the bar exam that when you don't, it can really leave you in a in a bad state of mind. And if you don't if you don't like kind of nurture your soul along the way, um, you got to be careful because it gets real dark real fast. And it's one of isolation because I was the only one I knew who failed. I certainly wasn't going to broadcast that. I wasn't going to talk about it, right? No one talks about these things. And people have already told me like, wow, it takes guts to write a book like this. I'm like, well, I needed to do this because I needed writing the the kinds of things I was thinking and the multi-layers of feelings and thoughts that I was wrestling with were such that I needed writing to help myself do my thinking. And so that's where I put pen to paper. And if you don't really kind of nurture your soul that way, if you don't think about some things from gratitude, if you don't think about some things about, well, okay, this is not the end of the world. I, I can move on. Uh, mm. And so you just got to be careful. And I, I hope that I can be of service to people with this book. And it doesn't mean failing the bar exam. If you failed anything, if you failed at marriage, if you failed at you know the MCATs or you failed at a job or whatever it is, anything that you put so much effort into that leaves you empty handed without much answers. Like I just tried to make sense of it for myself. And I realized maybe I could be helpful to others because when I failed, there was no podcast. There was no book. I couldn't find anything that could help speak to this that, that might help be, you know, show me what's on the other side of failure. Mm, right on. So yeah. well said uh, your words on toxic shame, I thought were really inspiring and that, uh, we do need to be able to move on after a failure. We do need to be able to still take pride in ourselves and to work on our own soul. So uh, you wrote the book for all the right reasons. And that's why I'm really glad we can highlight it. And uh, I just want to compliment any Marine that can write a whole book. Way to go, man. That is- <laughs> yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it took some time, but thank you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, but seriously, uh, from lawyer to warrior, failing the bar, becoming a Marine and finding meaning. You'll find a lot of meaning in this. This will help motivate anybody, veteran or otherwise, uh, kind of at a crossroads in life. And uh, I encourage you to go check out Chris Pavlik, Marine Corps veterans, newest book. And just congrats on getting this thing done, getting it published and getting it out there in the world. We just launched this week from what I understand, but tell me more about where I find the book and again, where I find more on you. Absolutely. Yeah, no, thank you so much for having me. Uh, LawyerToWarrior.com is my website, LawyerToWarrior.com. And then it's also on Amazon. You'll find a link to Amazon uh, on my website. I also have a Facebook page, Lawyer to Warrior Facebook page as well. Very cool. Well, look forward to diving in, learning more lessons of life from one fine Marine Corps veteran, Chris Pavlik. Thank you so much for being on the show, brother. Thank you so much, Bill. And we'll be back with more inspiring stories from great military veterans when CBS Ion Veterans returns. This is CBS Ion Veterans. I'm Navy vet Phil Briggs reporting for the military news and veteran lifestyle website, connectingvets.com. Now, as we honor Black History Month, I recalled a conversation I had last year with an incredible Army veteran whose contributions to education helped open doors for vets of every generation since. 
Vernon Hood Taylor served in the U.S. Army during the Vietnam era, and his story reveals the racial divide that existed in America's education system decades ago. But his accomplishments, thanks to the U.S. Army and University of Maryland Global Campus, are a true American success story, worthy of being remembered during this Black History Month. How are you, sir? Hi, how you doing, Phil? Good to have you. And, uh, you know, as we noted there in the lead, uh, your career is just fascinating. It is because of your work we have the Sailor Marine American Council on Education Registry transcript or the SMART program, which allowed service members to basically transfer some of their training and education from the military to college degrees. Before we get into all that you've done there, well, let's start with some DD-214 cliff notes, man. I see that uh, you're an alum with a Bachelor of Arts from back in 1981, but uh, you're an Army veteran, and you served in an era radically different in ways from today, but yet dissimilar in some ways. So share with me a little bit about your service background. Yeah, you know, basically, I joined the military in 1971, and uh, I was uh, I volunteered to go to anywhere they were sent me. And at that time, Vietnam was winding down, and they sent me to Germany. Went to Germany, and in Germany, I I fell in love with the culture. And when I uh, was getting ready to get out of the military, I um, decided I wanted to stay in Germany. But the only way you could stay in Germany was actually have some type of status forces agreement. And the only way that I could do that was actually work for an institution that was an American institution that I could get what they call an ID card. And that was, guess what institution that was? University of Maryland in Germany, no less. <laughs> in, in Germany. And, and frankly, the first contact that I had with University of Maryland was to take basic skills. In other words, I had, I was raised in Okefenokee Swamp where English was a second language. <laughs> and, <laughs> and when I started trying to go to University of Maryland, they said, you need to learn that language. I mean, English. And then that's how I started, uh, actually my first contact with University of Maryland. I, Let me just pump the brakes real quick there and say, why is it that you needed basic skills in order to oh. work in the academic industry? I was raised uh, in a in a school primarily. It was an all black school from first to twelfth grade. Uh, matter of fact, that old saying that every book that I used in high school was used by somebody else. In other words, it was the the school down the road that was the white school that provided their used books for, if you will, the the, the black high school. Uh, and although I did very well, it was probably about 78 people graduating from high school. I was the uh, uh, salutatorian. However, I didn't realize how like of quality some of the education was until I started trying to go to college. And that first indication that I needed additional academic uh, capabilities when I, I, I tried to enroll in University of Maryland. And, and, and once again, the first course that they put me in was, uh, basic skills. Uh, however, it was the stepping stone to what I am today, actually. It was, yeah. uh, it, it was one of those mistakes that is, as, as when I joined the army, it was one of the best mistakes I ever made. <laughs> as it is for a lot of people in hindsight, they look at something they may or may not have wanted to do during the Vietnam era, especially, and uh, went on to achieve great things. It's also what a statement of America circa late 60s in that the divide between the white education and the black education. That's something I think we take for granted today. We don't realize that like 
there is a cultural divide, or there was at one point in this country, a, a, a significant divide oh, between the way oh, you could learn enough. in the Black South and the way you could learn, you know, in the major metros where white people lived. And on the same token, though, uh, there was this capability within the black community. And I think that what came from that all black institution, especially because all my mentors and my teachers, my principal, everyone black, there was a tremendous capability of providing the confidence that I needed to succeed no matter where I went. So when I left Okefenokee Swamp, even though I didn't have the academics, I knew that I was going to be okay, uh, uh, no matter what I did or what I was trying to accomplish. And frankly, today, when I think about, if you will, the creation of some of those products for, uh, like their smart transcript, the U.S. map, the military apprenticeship program, it came from what I call my desire of being okay with who I was when I was in Okefenokee Swamp. I mean, that's a real silver lining to it. And I'm so glad you pointed out because sometimes I think we focus on the problems and not on the paths to success. And that was certainly bolstered by your time in the army. And, and actually <clears throat> that it hits on something else as well is that what I found in the military, I found, uh, Okefenokee swamp in the swamp. You were going to take care of your neighbors. That was, that was, there was no doubt that that's was what you were supposed to do. When I joined the army and I'm sitting beside this guy from Kentucky, we had no commonalities whatsoever. Yeah. And I was told, regardless of how he looks or what he talks like, I was responsible for his safety. He was responsible for my safety. That was what I found in the swamp. But here's even better getting to the University of Maryland part. Is once I started, actually, especially once I started working at the University of Maryland, the culture within the University of Maryland overseas were a completely different culture. And I think it had to do also with the fact that you had now Americans overseas. So you had to, in essence, protect each other. So I found almost like this family when I started, no matter what I did wrong or right, someone was there to help guide me. Uh, and, and frankly, I would say that it contributed to my success and my continuation of trying to continue to strive. That is very true. Whether it's the family in the swamp in the South, whether it's the family in the army, whether it's yeah. the family in college, uh, you get a good one. Like UMGC, you can, uh, find that family and find that support. Let's talk about a couple of cliff notes about what you did afterwards. You ended up helping develop the SMART program or the Sailor Marine American Council on Education Registry Transcript, which basically helps veterans, these service members now pursuing their college degrees, transfer their experiences and their schooling in the military to college, which before you came around really wasn't done broadly. Actually, what happened is that after working for University of Maryland for four years, I ended up getting the job because I, I fell in love with the education scene. I also fell in love with uh individuals talking to individuals while I was working for Maryland, telling other young service members how to go through the program and to have them to come back and talk to me about their success of what they've accomplished. And even some of those that got out, even before I left, to write back to me and say what they were doing because of the, I would call the exposure that we traveled together on the educational path. So I, after Maryland, I worked for uh, Boston University doing the same thing, talking to service members and trying to provide guidance to them. And once again, it was so rewarding 
that I, I figured out right then that that is what I wanted to do. So I became an education officer in the Army, an education officer in the Air Force, and then eventually I became the head of Marine Corps Education Worldwide. Now that's where we're wrapped for this week, but to hear our full interview with Mr. Taylor, you can check out the Ion Veterans podcast from November 23rd at ConnectingVets.com. I'm Navy Vet Phil Briggs, and I'll be back again next week with more inspiring stories from our nation's vets when CBS Ion Veterans returns. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, starting May 8th, wherever you get your podcasts.